and welcome to Research and Justice for All, a podcast series from Health Affairs sponsored by CVS Health. I'm your co-host, Dr. Shri Chagaturu, Chief Medical Officer of CVS Health. And I'm co-host, Dr. Jonay Khaldun, Chief Health Equity Officer at CVS Health. We have a great interview to share with you today, don't we, Janae? Absolutely. We're talking to Dr. Karen DeSalvo, the Chief Health Officer at Google. I'm such a fan of her. She really works at the intersection of medicine, public health, and information technology, really focusing on helping everyone, regardless of where they are, who they are, have a healthier life. And she's leading a team as well that develops AI solutions focused on some of the biggest health challenges facing our country and really about addressing our health challenges with an equity lens. So really, really important conversation. Karen is a true champion for health equity. It was great to sit down with her and hear her talk about her career from working in Louisiana to federal government and now in the private sector at Google, where she's using the power of data to advance health equity. It really was a great conversation. She also provided us with very tactical kind of examples of how she leveraged data and partnerships, both in her uh, governmental kind of public health roles, but also in her new role at Google. So let's jump into it. Here's our interview with Dr. Karen DeSalvo of Google. Hope you all enjoy it. Welcome, Dr. Karen DeSalvo. Thanks for joining us on the Research and Justice for All podcast. Well, thank you guys for having me. I'm so excited for the conversation today. Yeah, Janae and I are really looking forward to our conversation with you and hearing about how Google is using data to advance health equity. We'll also talk about your time in government, as well as uh, all the specific initiatives that Google is taking on, especially some of the newer initiatives, such as the role of artificial intelligence and how that can play in addressing health inequities. But before we get into all of that, we'd like to start every interview with asking our guests one question, and that is, as you think about health equity, why is this work important to you? I have to say that it's um, somehow really built into my DNA. And I, I think part of that is because I grew up as a poor kid. I was a free lunch kid and I had a single mom. And, it, you know, we we struggled. And there are lots of kids like that uh, in the world, including in America. And I had a lot of opportunities and chances. And I want to um, give back and create a um, a world in which it's not the exception, but just the norm that everybody has a chance at high quality of life and, and, you know, health is what I do. So I think about it in the framing of health. And so for me, uh, any work that I ever want to do, any actions that I want to take, I need to have the, the notion built in that it's going to have an equitable outcome. It's going to close the gap and uh, raise the floor for everybody. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that, that this is not just professional for you, but this is incredibly personal. Thank you so much, Karen. I mean, I, I'm just a, a huge fan of yours. You've been, um, as Sri noted, a, a great leader in the public and, and private sectors and, and, and really leading great work at Google. But let, let's jump right in and, and talk about uh, data. Now, there's been a lot of talk over the past uh, several years around data and health equity and specifically the need for getting more granular uh, demographic data around race, ethnicity, sexual orientation, gender identity. How do you think about the role of data in advancing health equity? And how do you actually balance this kind of need for gathering and collecting more data with the need to act 
urgently, given the disparities and the poor health outcomes that we're seeing across the country. Well, Janae, you know I'm a fan, so thank you for those kind comments. I'm a fan of both of you guys. And and I, I, th- I think all of us, as we think about understanding the problem, data helps to shape that narrative of what needs to get solved. It also helps us know if we're making progress in solving the challenges that individuals and communities face. So it's one of the the deficits I believe we've had in the past, and we see over and over again that when we as a nation face a health challenge, it takes us far too long to be able to understand the disproportionate impact to communities, whether they're low-resource communities or communities of color, communities that are uninsured. It's it, it, The data um, lag, and as a result, we're sometimes behind the ball trying to, to catch up and know what exactly the problem we need to solve and particularly for which communities. This happened again in COVID. Uh, it's happening again in the um, current the current wave we're seeing of substance use disorder. So we really got to get much um, more smart and systematic about just having this as a part of the way that we problem solve. And because again, we want what we want to know is are we making a difference and and making it such that we live in a world where we we don't always have these inequities, but we have to be able to measure and and monitor it. I did want to um, make a, a, an additional comment about data because sometimes when people think about health equity data, they're thinking about individuals and their um, risks and um, access to services and care and their health outcomes. Of course, there are um, additional data that is that is necessary to understand underlying risk, and th- those sometimes come in the form of understanding um, some of the social determinants of health, what's the built environment, and, and how have um, policies like redlining affected people's access to services and healthy environments in, in their neighborhoods, uh, all, all the way to some of the political determinants of health. So the data comes in many forms, not just at the individual personal level. We can do so much good also if we better understand the context, um, whether that's the policy or the environmental or the public health context in which we're trying to uh, find problems that we need to solve uh, with urgency and then, and then know that we have done what we need to do to help people in communities. I love what you're saying, talking about, you know, it's not just individual, it's broader communities and even at the national level looking at data. So you've had great experience uh, at the federal um, and the the local level in, in health, particularly at the Office of the National Coordinator for Health IT. Can you talk a little bit more about what role uh, the federal government could or should play in advancing equitable health outcomes by leveraging data? And how did you think about this in your role at ONC? You know, I came to um, the Office of National Coordinator directly from being the health commissioner in New Orleans. And in that job um, as health commissioner, I had set out with an agenda to address the major um, morbidity and mortality challenges that my community faced. And in looking at the data at the local level uh, in, in New Orleans, what I what I saw was that it was cardiovascular disease and um, cancer. And I, I remember very, um, uh, and I remember a couple of things about that initial experience of, of taking on the mantle of health commissioner. One of the things I remember is that the data that I was looking at describing the health challenges of the community was about three years old. And so I was doing my best on some pretty stale data, and I had a pretty good sense I was looking in the rearview mirror 
at what the challenges were in the community. And I also knew that there was real-time data in um, patient records or perhaps even um, novel signal sources that could tell us more about what was happening in the moment in our communities and didn't have access to that in public health. Even though the high-tech legislation that led to the digitization of the health experience and care experience for Americans originally conceived that it would be um, one of the use cases would be to improve the public's health and so therefore useful to public health, but those pipes never got built because they weren't funded. And so I was on the the, you know I'd been on the end of healthcare and implementing uh, technology EHRs. And knew that we had a better handle on the population health needs of our the folks that we were serving in healthcare. But then I stepped two blocks down the street to be health commissioner, and I was it wasn't that I was working blind, but I was working out of the rearview mirror. And when when I was asked to go to Washington and serve in this technology role, I initially said, "No, I'm not. I'm not a technology person. I'm not interested. I'm a community health, public health person." But as they um, helped me understand uh, what the goals were uh, for the administration and the office, it was really about what are the additional use cases for the information to to improve population health, public health. How can we make make this um, system more more person-centered and not data um, IT-centered? And so when I um, was able to, to, to be in that role, I got to do just that. We in my tenure, it was time to rewrite the federal health IT strategic plan. And for the first time then, we were uh, in a position to convene across government from the VA to um, Indian Health Service um, to, of course, CMS and all the parts of HHS, uh, HUD. We were able to bring together folks who were interested not only in healthcare but also in the public's health and write a strategic plan that was that put the person at the center, people in their community, and thought about how data would be helpful across their lifespan and what data inputs beyond the EHR would help tell that story. What were the social determinants of health information? What were the other contextual uh, types of information like air quality that would begin to inform a more, more holistic picture of what was happening to people's health? And I had always in my head you know, that time when, when I was a health commissioner and trying to do the right thing for community, but not sure that I was on point because I I had this old data. By the way, it's also quite difficult when you're when you're making policy and and programs at the local level, but your data is old, and you're not going to see the outcome of your, the impact of the work that you're doing till you're already long gone from the job. I have had that experience too, um, and so now like I, now I can some of the evaluative stuff starts to show up, but it's just the data so stale. So I. Uh, in that role, I think, uh, in particular, I was very focused on timely, actionable, granular data that had utility, usefulness to help people uh, in the more near time, but also not just in the when they were patients, but in their in their uh, everyday lives. And that was a really big job one. We we did a lot of other work to improve access for consumers, but also to start to think about how do we get that data. Um, the data inputs that are more granular that, that that talk to us about what are the disparities. What are the um, the social determinants and the inputs um, into people's health that go beyond healthcare? And do that um, with partners uh, all across the government. And I, I mean, honestly, watching through Trump's administration and now into the Biden administration, that they've continued to make really good progress on thinking holistically about what are the data inputs. How do we do that in a way that is that honors a person's consent, but also honors the fact that it's not they're not just needing that information to be there for them as a patient, but also as a person in their daily life. 
Karen, thank you so much for sharing that. And you've had an opportunity to build a tremendous set of infrastructure and tools in your role in federal government. And now you're at Google as the chief health officer. And so as you think about this opportunity at Google, what do you see the role of the private sector in using data to advance health equity? Well, I think it's um, obligatory that that um, we're working together to to advance this set of goals. The, the definition of public health for me is what we do together as a society to create the conditions in which everyone can be healthy in that word. Everyone is so meaningful to me, right? We need to be able to, it's not just for some people in, in some places. And at Google, for the past, past three and a half years since I've been here, we uh, were pretty focused for an, a, a big, big chunk of that time on COVID and thinking of ways that information that we had could be helpful to the public sector or to partners out in the ecosystem to help them understand what were the potential challenges that people were facing with respect to COVID. So an example, there would be uh, work that we did with the the Satcher Institute at Morehouse to build a um, health equity tracker. So we knew that we had some, it wasn't that we had data, but we had data capabilities. So we had uh, engineers and others who were data, data scientists that we could loan to Morehouse to build a health equity tracker to accelerate the country's understanding of how COVID was disproportionately impacting people on the front lines. And people, you know, remember this is a time when we had very little uh, access to information like that. It was hardly being collected and it certainly wasn't being surfaced. So that's an example of how we partnered during the pandemic to bring not not so much our data, Sri, but our technology uh, to to help um, bring uh, information to life. And I'll give you another example, which is more about bringing data. You know, our maps capabilities, the the Google Maps is an incredibly important equity tool. I could give a ton of examples about how I've begun to understand that what you show on that map when people search for services or care, it really matters, especially that you make sure that you're surfacing things like the safety net, federally qualified health centers, and not only um, this, the systems that have the bandwidth to be able to populate the maps. I mean, it's a it's a system, right, where there are people showing the, the hospital or urgent care center that they run. We have to we have to really go a little further to make sure that Indian Health Service, Rural Health Service, FQHCs, and others show up on uh, on that map so people know the the range of resources they might have available to them. And an example of how we did this in COVID was um, um, working on on a vaccine equity tracker to show things like um, where were there literally geographic gaps in access to vaccine sites for COVID that such that public health or healthcare systems in that community could look at the map and say, oh, um, there is a vaccine desert in this spot, so let's do a pop-up there or let's add some additional resources. So it's an example of how a tool that has some data that's just essentially businesses and, and, and care sites that we can help use that to make sure that that we can elevate or show where there might be uh, equity challenges for people who who want a service like a COVID vaccine, but wouldn't otherwise uh, have, have access to it unless you could put a physical a physical new spot there. And so, and there are the, boy, there are other examples, but I I I think it kind of gets to this point for us at Google, which is um, we build things with equity by design, where we have been increasingly doing that. For the past three years, Ivor Horn is the physician that I brought in to build our health equity program. And 
Um, they, they work um, not only with asking the right questions with the product teams, but thinking about what are the ways that we want to make sure that the data sources or the data uses are going to get us to a place uh, of better equity. And I have to tell you, um, the product teams, Search, YouTube, Fitbit, name a team, are so excited to have that extra input and talent, especially because at the end of the day, what they want to do is build something that is going to improve health for all or make the world a place that's you know more helpful, better quality of life. And doing that from the get-go, building that in by design, certainly makes their work easier, and it also allows us to make those adjustments uh, earlier in the product area. But we learned quite a bit in COVID about how to, how to do it in a way that we can scale and how to do that with partners. Karen, I love that ethos and principle of equity by design. That is just a wonderful saying. And that example of how you're using maps as a tool to help address equity is just a, a very real example of how when you think about the levers you have in whatever organization you're in and you use that principle of equity by design, you can help to advance the conversation and the work in reducing inequities in healthcare. So thank you for sharing that. And then, you know, Karen, one of the hot topics that we keep reading about all the time these days is about artificial intelligence. And since the release of these large language models and Google has released its own uh, versions of BARD and then the more medical-specific MedPalm, I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about what are these uh, large language models and artificial intelligence and how is Google thinking about how to use these tools to address health inequities and mitigating bias. It'll be interesting to listen to this podcast a few months from now, but it is just about all we're thinking about in Silicon Valley and certainly at Google, the, um, the, the potential of the next gen of generative AI that we're, that we're all working with now to improve health at a planetary scale is extraordinary. It also comes with potential challenges, and hopefully we'll talk a little bit about both. Um, it, uh, you know, AI in and of itself is something we've been uh, working with as a company for a long time. It's, we're an AI-first company. Many of the tools that I was describing to you earlier are built on AI. The important work there in, in our AI principles and the equity work we do to think about what is the data going in, is it skewed, does it come with bias? How can we correct that? Um, you know, for example, work we've done in in dermatology AI to get people a a sense of of what might be going on on their you know skin, making sure that um, by working with the Skin of Color Society and others that we're not only having a representative sampling, but we're helping to move the field forward so it does a better job of defining um, what what the range of skin tones are. That's an example of, of the deep work that we would do in, in a space like AI or mammography work, the, you know, the, the array of, of imaging and diagnostics tools that we've been partnering to build for a number of years. But the, the capabilities um, that ChatGPT showed when it came on the scene last fall, I think everybody has sensed that, it, you don't, that, that this next generation of AI, you don't have to train to do a thing. You can do things you've never trained it to do. You can you can do some light teaching and show that it can start to self-teach, and the machines can actually teach one another. So the the pace at which it's improving is extraordinary, and giving people a lot of aspirational thinking. 
I mean, just the, you mentioned MedPalm. This is our medically tuned large language model that we essentially sent to medical school, training it on um, six large medical knowledge databases, showed in a publication in December of 22 that it could pass the USMLE, which is the um, credentialing score for medical students. It could pass it at 67.5%, um, working to make the model better to fine-tune its ability to clinically reason. I'm anthropomorphizing there, I know, but it's it. how does it think about getting the right answer? We were able in just the span of a, a few weeks to get the performance up to 87% uh, pass rate. So it's already now an, ex an exceptional um, medical student. And, and we're continuing to improve its capabilities to have fact-based knowledge and, and be able to um, perform things like answering questions or summarizing complicated documents. The, the um, capabilities of MedPalm and other models like that I think start to, to raise questions about how is it going to be a part of the doctor's black bag or the nurse's toolkit? Um, what are the ways that it's going to be an extension? Essentially, I think of it as an extension of the medical home team. Uh, I think about it as the, having the potential to um, see that everybody on the planet has access to world-class medical care and a medical home. Uh, for an extremely affordable price in a way that meets them where they are on their phone. It allows them to, to have a more anticipatory experience because it's going to get to know them. Just in the way your email gets to know you and knows what's the likely next word you're going to type, that's how large language models, as they get more and more sophisticated, will know people. But look, not everybody wants a bot in their business. And the reality is, is that as, as, it, as you, know, you can think of, imagine all of these use cases, but there are significant privacy and autonomy issues that will have to be addressed. People need to have clear understanding about what are their choices, how's their data being used. And um, we, we, we have a, a lot of work to do as a nation to figure out what's the framework uh, to, to make sure that we're not only taking advantage of the opportunity and the promise, but that we're we're not um, having too many trade-offs in terms of, of some of the, the, the needs for individuals. I, one of the areas we're very concerned about is, uh, is bias and um, the, the potential that, that just like all digital tools and all AI, it can exacerbate inequities if you're not intentional about it. What, what we have to do is build them with intention to eliminate inequities. And LLMs are another tool in that digital toolkit that, that can do it, but it will have to be, uh, there would have to be significant attention to skewed, you know, the skewed inputs. Um, think, think about it this way. If, if, if we know in the U.S. healthcare system that there's already implicit bias and that black women get different kinds of care than white women when they're pregnant. If we were to use that as input into a large language model as a, say, say to create a decision-making tool to help a doctor or a nurse or a doula know the next best action, it could be built upon a very biased set of inputs that are predicated on a system that that was not already equitable. So we as a community have so much work to do to understand not just what is the potential, but what is what are the inputs and how are we going to, even in the moment when the humans are doing the turns and teaching, no model, that's not right, this is this would have been the correct answer or et cetera, then, then, then we need to make sure that those humans, those doctors and nurses and other health professionals, also are aware of their own potential and implicit bias. But look, I mean, can you imagine a world in which it, the LLM might say to the doctor, hey, doc, 
for all other people like this, you prescribe this drug or this this care pathway, you want to just take a second and make sure that you're not, for some reason, ordering in a different way for this particular patient. And think of the potential gift that could be to, to get rid of things like implicit bias and to drive equity into the system. So I'm optimistic about it, but boy, um, we're, we're very much about a go slow and test uh, mindset around here of, of the opportunity for it to, to, to do good things in the field because we want to make sure that we're being thoughtful as we carry them forward. Thanks for that, Karen. I mean, I, I you can tell it's really on my mind. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> That's super exciting. I mean, I agree. It's, it's a little scary to me, actually, that, that a, a, a chatbot could could pass the USMLE exam as a practicing physician. But I also uh, agree there's a lot of opportunity there um, and opportunity to address uh, disparities and bias. So thank you for that. You know, let's let's talk a little bit about the tech sector, right? You talked about AI and the potential for bias. You know, what do you think the tech sector has gotten right when it comes to addressing health inequities by leveraging data, what do you think the tech sector has potentially gotten wrong or, or perhaps needs to make sure we're, we're mitigating or, or, or making sure we're not doing something wrong as it comes to addressing disparities and, and health inequities? I think the tech sector has gotten um, tripped up on things that are common in all of the healthcare system, quite honestly. And, and some of it may be a little more um, particular to the tech sector, but I've I found this in, in other other places where where I have I have worked, and here's what I mean by that: um, the people who are uh, identifying the problems to solve and solving the problems don't tend to be reflective of the people who are actually in need. Sometimes it's it's pretty subtle. We, we just we just um, published a paper in the New England Journal of Medicine Catalyst about work that we've done on our clinical team here at Google to build up one that we believe is more representative of the people we're serving and has has uh, more diverse life experiences. Sometimes it comes in the form of, you know, the, the, the I was about to say wicked smart, I guess that's the Boston in me coming out, the wicked smart people <laughs> um, who, you know, are the cardiologists with 20 patents who are at, at Stanford or Harvard um, are the ones that, that end up in significant roles in, in tech companies, large and small. Those individuals have had stellar careers, but they may not have worked in a rural health clinic or run a small hospital in in rural India or um, uh, been, you know, maybe uh, done home visits uh, for, you know, a home health company or even for their own primary care practice. And the Stanford Harvard cardiologists have a role to play, but so do people who have those other kinds of experience and experiences. And so those are the people that we've been adding to our team. I also firmly believe it's important to not just build tech tools um, with the minds of doctors, because we learn a lot of stuff. But there's a lot of things that I didn't learn in medical school that my colleagues that are nurses learned, or pharmacists, or social workers. I'm such a big believer in team-based care and, and all the health professionals bringing the best of the best to the table. So uh, I also want to have a team that has diverse professional experiences, because they'll all see the thing from a different vantage point. And, and having that is extremely helpful when you're building products, especially when they're going to be at scale like they are at Google. If we want to you know, have information out about mental health, I want to have the best, best, most diverse minds thinking about that. So diversity for me is about lived experience. It's about 
it is very much about cultural, uh, ethnic, racial uh, diversity and experience because, boy, every day I'm surprised at how I just don't see things in a certain way because I'm a white girl and I just didn't have that that point of view. And so I very much appreciate how diverse we've been able to build our team. So that's a part of it. But I think what tech is getting better at, and I'm very proud of us here, I mentioned it a little earlier, is building equity by design. So, you know, we can't be in every room. But what we can do is is increase awareness and give people some tools to work on a daily basis. And then when they get stuck, have it really easy for them to know how to come find us so that um, Ivor and her team and any of the rest of us that are ambassadors can help with that work. And in a very short period of time, I have seen um, that cultural shift in our company. And I would love to see that that is the kind of thing that happens more broadly uh, uh, across tech. But you have to be very intentional about it and very open to recognizing that brilliance comes in many forms. I don't even know any other way, any other way to say it. But I think that's true in healthcare too. It's not, uh, you know, sometimes, certainly when I started in healthcare, there were very few women in leadership, and there's still not that many. Um, uh, some obvious, you know, stellar examples like at CBS Health. I, I think I think we have some work to do to to improve the voices and and the points of view that are are coming to the table. So I I, I see it as a journey. I see it as getting better. Um, but I also uh, think we, the tech needs to uh, take a hard look at the fact that it needs to build for everyone, everywhere, not some people, some places. Karen, thank you for sharing that, and I, I love how you're talking about have a diverse workforce building for a diverse workforce. And that's important as you think about how you're using your platform at Google in building out products and tools for addressing health equity. And, you know, as one last final question, you've now had the opportunity to work in the public sector and the private sector. And how are you thinking about the opportunities for public-private partnerships to advance health equity through data, tools, and infrastructure? Again, I think it's super essential and because uh, uh, nobody has all the capabilities, nor do I think they have to. And I'll say, I'll give, I want to give you an example, going back to my time as health commissioner in New Orleans, of a, of a, of a tool that we'd love to partner more with folks more, so I'm going to do a little commercial about it. Uh, when I, um, I told you all that story about becoming health commissioner and thinking it was cardiovascular disease and cancer. And uh, that's certainly what the quantitative data said. My very, very smart um, uh, New Orleans Health Department team said to me, well, we know that you think you're very smart, but maybe you should go talk to some people in the community. And I did. I did a bunch of listening sessions in, you know, church halls and libraries and whatnot. And what I heard from people over and over again in my community was the biggest challenges that we're facing are violence, mental health, and lack of economic opportunity. It was just so consistent over and over again. And they never mentioned cardiovascular disease or cancer. But when you do the through line and you start to say, well, what is, how, how, do, how do those challenges the communities face, my communities facing, lead to ongoing long stressors that are allostatic load that increase the risk of cardiovascular disease and malignancy? There's data that's scientifically grounded. And it was just a lesson for me that, having mixed qualitative, quantitative, real-time information and listening and hearing from people is super important. So one of the things I think is that, but it's a str- it's hard to do because it takes a lot of time and it's hard to collect that data, um, especially when you're in a uh, lower resource environment like public health. 
we had developed during p- the pandemic, we Google um, uh, something called search symptoms trends, which is 420 signs and symptoms that are health-related that people are searching on at the county level. We refresh that anonymized database every day, three years of rolling data, and it, it is a an input that public health and healthcare or anyone can use to say, what's on the top of the mind for the people living in this county? What are they searching on with respect to health? It's an open database. It is anonymized. And we, I really want people to use it as a, uh, an, an augmentation to any other resources or data that they might use. It's a novel signal. And we have it sitting there. We've got some folks using it. There's been some publications coming out for how it is well correlated with things like mental health surveys. But I I end on this to say that even when private sector comes to the table, there needs to be some pull from the public sector to keep them there. And and so I think in the pandemic, we had a lot of private sector come to the table and want to work with public sector partners. I don't want folks to drift away because there's not that same big problem to solve and big energy. We need to find things to work on together to keep those bridges so that we can have those relationships, not only for the everyday stuff, but also for the big health challenges the country's facing in areas, you know, like mental health and substance use disorder. So you, you can't just um, build, like, you can't just make the data available as a pri- as the private sector. you got to do a lot of work to get it used and uh, maybe do some commercials. Sometimes for people, I say commercial, it's free, it's available to, to folks. But I, I, I do think we, we're going to have to, as, a, as an industry, make sure that we're keeping it as a priority, that we all want to keep working together, because it's pretty hard to build those things in the heat of the moment. It's better to have that baseline running all the time. That's such an important point. Um, you know, myself as well, having worked in the public and, and now private sector, so important to bring partners together, but not just for the crisis, right, but ongoing partnership to advance health equity. Thank you so much, Karen, for such a really just engaging conversation and just sharing so much knowledge and insight uh, into how we can really move the needle on health equity, whether it's leveraging AI, uh, leveraging public-private partnerships, and really just sharing some of the great work that you're doing at Google. So thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you, Karen. Thank you guys so much. It's such a pleasure. Thank you for the opportunity to get to chat with you all and share a little bit about what we're doing. What a great conversation with Karen. I really agree. It was really interesting to hear her talk about her work, both in public health, at the local and the federal level, and also her work at at Google. And what really resonated with me was her really talking about health equity by design and the important role of partnerships across multiple sectors. Yes, there's a lot of similarities between what Google is doing, what we're doing here at CVS Health on our approaches to maximizing artificial intelligence to address health inequities. And I thought it was really great how Karen talked about the importance of us recognizing that there could be bias in these models and we need to be very cautious. But by addressing those biases, we can create tools that will help us address health inequities. Absolutely. And it's really going to be interesting to see what Google does next. Well, that's it for today. And thanks for joining us on Research and Justice for All podcast sponsored by CVS Health. I'm Dr. Sri Chagaturu. And I'm Dr. Jonay Keldoon. Please share this podcast with anyone you know who is working to advance health equity. And don't forget to subscribe to the Research and Justice for All podcast if you haven't already. Thanks for listening. See you next time, everyone. Take care. Research and Justice for All is produced by Health Affairs. This season is sponsored by CBS Health. If you enjoyed this episode, the best thing you could do is share it with a friend or a colleague. It helps people find the show. 
Thanks for listening, and be sure to check out Health Affairs' other podcasts, A Health Policy and Health Affairs This Week. Health Affairs, where health policy advances.